Hey, everybody, we've got a great show for you today. What a treat. Section 32's Bill Maris is on the program. He founded Google Ventures, and he has amazing stories about Uber, Tesla, uh, and everything that happened at Google during the formative years. A tremendous guest. Can't believe we waited till our second decade to have him on the podcast. Yes, we've been doing this podcast uh, now uh, for over 10 years. Crazy when you think about that, and I love it. My God, for me, doing this podcast is just like... It's like a little bit of a mental workout for me. So three, four, five days a week, I like to work out and do this show. I wish I could do that on the actual physical workouts. I'm, I'm trying to get there. This Week in Startups is brought to you by Our Crowd helps you invest early in pre-IPO companies alongside professional VCs. If you're interested in investing, you can join Our Crowd for free at OurCrowd.com slash twist. LinkedIn Jobs. A business is only as strong as its people, and every hire matters. Post your first job for free at linkedin.com slash twist. And Brainbase. Protecting your ideas should be simple. Built by founders for founders, Brainbase File is a clean and automated trademark filing platform that gives anyone the ability to protect their idea. File now for just $169 at brainbase.com slash twist using code twist. I wanted to continue this new format that we started here based on the Founder University program. So these are our little fun segments, Founder University new segments. And today I want to talk about something that is incredibly important, which is how to manage remote workers, how to give people autonomy, freedom and responsibility. And I started this program called the SODEOD, start of day, end of day reporting, maybe three or four years ago, maybe four or five years ago in my organizations, remote organizations like inside.com, which I run. And then I moved it over to launch, which was an in person organization, but we increasingly had remote workers in Canada and other locations, because we opened up a Canadian office, and we wanted to make sure we uh, stayed in touch with them and knew what they were doing, and we could help them. So if you implement this SOD EOD reporting system, start of day, end of day on your Slack or whatever chat uh, you're using to manage your company, uh, I suspect everybody's using Slack now, you're going to really have four main benefits as the owner manager of the company founder. Number one, you're going to be able to identify the high performers in your organization, which is critically important. Uh, and sometimes you know, the obvious ones, because they're extroverts, and they tell you all the great things they are doing. But other times you might have these sleepers people in the organization who are doing much more work, in some cases, than their bosses. And their bosses are getting paid 50% more. And then you look at it and say, well, maybe that person should be the boss. Huh? Interesting. Number two, it's going to identify who shouldn't be in your organization, who's not a culture fit, who's not getting it done, who's not doing the work. And number three, it's going to reduce stress. And it's going to increase productivity. Because if people know they did a great day's work, they earned their keep at your organization, they earned their dollar. In fact, maybe they earned more than you paid them. That's going to actually reduce stress. And when everybody sees what's getting done, it actually kind of motivates everybody. Uh, and then finally, it's going to eliminate a bunch of meetings and confusion. And of course, people say all the time, the number one thing we need to fix in our organization is communication, the highest communication organizations and the lowest. So okay, you might have seen my startup math segment last week on episode 1231. Yes, 1231 episodes of this week in startups. It's actually a little higher because we didn't count some episodes 
that were in full episodes or part of the angel podcast. We're calling these founder university new just because they're new content that we're making. That's our internal name for it. And the acronym is fun. So hopefully you'll have fun with these. They're basically to supplement the 17 or 18 classes of founder university we had in person. This was a two day course we did prior to the pandemic, and then we moved it online. You can go see that course at founder.university. It's free. We just did this to increase our deal flow to meet more founders earlier on episode 35 of the all in podcast at the 53 minute mark. I talked about a management style here I use at launch. And I want to go more in depth on that because a lot of you have been asking me questions about it. It's basically called start of day end of day. Um, and there's two other things we do that we added to it the start of week SOW and the EOW end of week for Monday morning and Friday at the end of the day. It's had a huge impact at my companies. And I'm hearing from some of you that it's uh, you've been implementing it and having like incredible results. Uh, Krishan told me on Twitter, and we'll pull up the tweet here on YouTube, the SOD EOD Slack update idea uh, on the recent pod was genius. I'm going to implement this across my entire organization and the boards I sit on effective immediately great way to manage remote and uh, manage remote work environment and culture. So let me get into this. Uh, how I came up with it and how you can implement it. And I hope that you take it and build on this idea. It, it, this is not exactly a new idea uh, because obviously people did stand ups and all kinds of other meeting formats. I just did this for myself to come up with something lightweight because I hate managing people. I don't like micromanaging people. And I have a habit when things aren't going well, uh, like many founders who have a high standard of falling into micromanaging mode. I don't want to be a micromanager. This is something that sometimes employees uh, at companies don't understand. Your manager would rather everything get done and not micromanage you because that takes a lot of effort and time and it creates stress. And it's kind of dysfunctional when somebody has to micromanage somebody who's being paid to do a job, isn't it? Nobody really wants that situation. There might be some weird people who want it, but certainly uh, founders who want to succeed are not interested in micromanaging. So I wrote a blog post back in January of 2019 where I highlighted this. Um, and it's a very simple uh, concept. And I've been iterating on it, as I said. But it really promotes responsibility within a team. And it really encourages high performers to deliver increasingly higher results. Because if you can measure it, you can manage it people who record their speed uh, at running the mile people who weigh themselves every day people who calorie count or do portion control they get better results. This has all been proven over and over again in studies. And when it, this is done right, it gets rid of that micromanagement. And it makes the high performers want to be at a company and people who low performers sometimes raise their hand and say, I'm opting out Bye, <laughs> I'm leaving, which is a good thing. Or they say, I feel like I'm not doing enough. Can I take on more work? So this is really simple. At the start of the day, when you have your cup of coffee or tea, whatever you're having, you fire up your slack and you just write down here are the three things. Sometimes it's five, sometimes it's one that I need to get done today. No excuses. I'm going to move the ball forward. I'm going to get these things done. Uh, and when there are hundred hundreds of things you could possibly do today, the SOD and the EOD forces you to prioritize. So take five minutes to think it through. And, you know, founders can have ADD. Uh, they can want to start a lot of projects. And so if their team members are doing an SOD, and they're saying these are the three or four things that need to get done, that allows the founder to go, Oh, my people need time. So 
we're, we're doing this event, we're doing this offsite meeting, we're launching this new sales uh, program, whatever it is, marketing program, they, they need to get it done. So you can actually see what they're doing. Just like some people do a point based system for developers, this is just bringing it to the whole organization, but even in a lighter way. Um, for instance, I will sometimes ask people if I want to drill down, do me a favor, just tell me how long these things took. Now this sounds like uh Oh, micromanaging punching the clock. I'll just say, you know, tell me how long it took to write the newsletter. And what we found at inside was some people were spending six hours writing a newsletter, some people were spending 90 minutes. And that allowed us to be curious and investigate why. And was there a correlation between a six hour newsletter and a 90 minute one? In some cases, the 90 minute one was performing better. That was really interesting. And oh, this person's being inefficient for these reasons, etc. So these are all the unintended uh, benefits. So um, I uh, asked as an example, Presh, who is our associate here at launch, when we did Angel University, when it's one month out, just tell us the total number of RSVPs, the target number of RSVPs for our Angel University program in your EOD and SOD. What that did was it got the whole organization behind a key metric, right? And an objective that we had. So if the target number was 500, and we had 200 pressure would put that he's 40% of the way to goal. Then I would ask them, hey, how many days are left? And how many people do we need to sign up? So if we have 300, and there's 30 days left, we got to sign up 10 people a day. So this allows people to be accountable, not to me, but to themselves and the, and the target goal they set. And this gave people the ability to stop doing things that were not important in the company and get focused on what was important. This also let the other team see it and say, hey, I have some ideas for you, where they might not have known what he was going to do. When they saw he was behind one time, we just basically did a barn raising, a sprint, and we said, hey, everybody, let's come up with ideas. Let's help him out. So we don't have to panic and feel like everything's last minute. It just makes everybody's uh, stress go down. Even if we're behind, we can say, okay, we're behind, but we know we're behind, right? When you're behind and it's 48 hours before the event, well, now you're just scrambling and, and you feel manic. But when you're behind and it's 30 days before the event, you can actually do it. It's time for another R Crowd deal of the week. Right now, you can join R Crowd's investment in Sfara. That's S F A R A, if you're wondering. Sfara builds safety technology in the fast growing multi billion dollar connected mobility market. Basically, it's safety software for workers in high-risk jobs like construction. According to the deal memo, Sfara's mobile platform uses AI and behavioral science to reduce risk, save lives, and ensure accountability for companies and their employees. You can get in early on Sfara and other unique opportunities at rcrowd.com slash twist. Now, do you wish you were in early on some of the best performing IPOs of 2019 and 2020? Well, our crowd investors were. And now you can join them in what's next. With our crowd, accredited investors have access to invest directly, easily, and most importantly, early. Our crowd investors have benefited from our crowd companies IPOing, like Beyond Meat, or being bought by companies like Intel, Nike, Microsoft, Oracle, and Uber. The investment team at RCrowd has already invested hundreds of millions of dollars in over 200 companies with dozens of exits. Again, the RCrowd account is free. Just go to OURCROWD.com slash twist. So you simply list what you're going to do. You put bullet points. Um, I suggest this is the first thing you do in the day. And 
Uh, when I first implemented this, some people didn't do it. Then I started replying to them. And this is a great management technique. If you're replying to them, or you're doing emojis uh, in Slack and just giving people a thumbs up, a high five, boy, this uh, lets them know, hey, we actually are recognizing, you're giving recognition. And it's only five minutes. I tell people, if you're taking more than five minutes, then I, as the manager or your manager or, or the company, has not given you clear instructions. If you don't wake up, go to work, and say, I know what I'm going to do today, whose fault is that? Is it your fault or is it your boss's fault? I think it's probably the latter. Uh, and so this creates clarity between management. How many people say, my manager, you know, gosh darn it, he, he or she never gives me clear instructions. I don't know what they want. I can never please them. Well, if you're all in agreement, these are the three or four things you're going to get done today and this week. Boy, does that create clarity and it removes a whole set of tensions. Then I said to folks, hey, you know, we're using Notion and we're documenting everything we do. We're moving to a written culture from a meeting culture, as I talked about with Des Trainer, uh, And a lot of us in the pandemic did this. Well, I say, uh, like with Presh in this example of the uh, Angel University, can you link to the Notion page where we have our checklist? Remember, I always talk about that book, The Checklist Manifesto, which had a great impact on me. Uh, great book. As an aside, you should read it. If he links to the checklist, well, then everybody in the organization can go see his checklist, find items on his checklist that maybe should be on their marketing checklist, right? And then those links are really helpful. Then with the podcasting team, I told them, can you put what episodes we're taping this week, and then what the publishing schedule is, and link to the episodes and link to the show notes from them. What that did was, the, the sales team didn't know what episodes were coming. They, they had to, would have to ask. Now nobody has to ask. They know where that information is on the Notion and in the Slack. And this has created a flywheel like you wouldn't believe. We are all in sync. And the, the linking to work makes it super easy to educate your team members. And that goes back to the number one complaint people have in businesses. We, the communications is the biggest problem. Everybody says communications is the biggest problem in every marriage, friendship, <laughs> work relationship, family, because we as, you know, these primate monkeys, <laughs> chimpanzees, we are socially driven. Communication can dictate how we feel. We are also problem solving monkeys, right? That's what we do. We solve problems. And it's an every day, a couple of little problems, we get a little bit of work done. It makes us feel good. So what makes humans feel good? accomplishing something and certainly accomplishing something with a team that you respect or a family member uh, or friends that you love and respect. This is when we're our best selves, I believe. When we're chimpanzees in a group, you know, apes together strong as per Planet of the Apes. When we do stuff together, we feel good. And this end of day, start of day, end of week, man, does this make you feel good about work because you're moving the ball forward and you're getting stuff done. The other thing I like about it is it's so easy. And if somebody feels like they're not contributing, my belief is overwhelmingly 99% of people out of 100, 99 out of 100 people, 99%, same thing. That is what people want. They want to get, be uh, a good contributor. There's nobody who comes to work and says, I want to put in a bad day's work. I want to sandbag it today. Is that a thing? I don't think that's a thing for anybody. So the other thing I found was 
this leveled the playing field between remote employees and in-person ones. The in-person ones were getting all of my attention, attention, and the remote ones weren't. But when everybody does this, oh boy, now it's a level playing field. Another thing that happens is there are some people in your organization when you implement this who will fight it. And they'll feel like you're micromanaging it. And I had somebody in one of our organizations fight me on it and said, I'm willing to do an EOW. I should have taken that and fired the person immediately. And man, all the downstream problems I had with them were all this very like selfish, I don't want to say what I'm doing. And it turned out they really weren't contributing as much as their peers or some of the people who were below them getting paid a fraction of what they were getting paid. If somebody fights you on this, it's likely the reason they're fighting you is that they're not getting it done. They're not doing the work. They're not keeping up with everybody else. And that's okay. They belong at another organization. If you can't run with the seven, eight mile per minute team, you should be running with the nine or 10 mile team. Also, how unfair is it when your boss takes credit for your work? Man, that used to make me when young J-Cal, when I was starting out, when my boss would take my credit for my work. And then Mike Savino, my boss's boss would find out I did it because we would go out and have a drink after work. When that person left at 530, that middle manager who I hated, you know, he, he was phoning it in. This program would have exposed him and would have shown who was actually doing the work and who was taking credit for it. So I'm a believer in anybody being able to do the work and take on work. I don't believe in hierarchies. I believe in performance and achievement. So this is a great equalizer. I had the, the same people who fought me on doing the end of work, end of day, and said, I'll just do an end of week. There's the same people who wanted unlimited vacation and wanted to go home at 430 and like not check their email. You can't not check your email in the business I'm in. We're in the business of closing deals. If I don't check my email, and Andreessen Horowitz does or Y Combinator does, or some syndicate does on Angelus, you know who gets the deal? They do. I, I'm in a competitive space. If you are closing your deal for your startup, and I'm not fast, you know what, even with my reputation, and how much people want to have me on their cap table, in most cases, and some people definitely don't want to have me on their cap tables, but most people do. <laughs> I, I can lose a deal. So this has been incredible for me realizing who is performing and who is overperforming. Additionally, when somebody leaves your organization, the managers then take all the end of weeks, we put them into a notion page or a Google Doc. And then we look at what that person was actually doing. And we say, Okay, there seems to be over the last five weeks, this is what this person was doing. Can we take this person's responsibility and chop it up and give it to the other five people? One of the people who wasn't getting it done, when they left, I just looked at their end of week. And I just said to some of the other people on the team, Hey, um, I'm going to give you guys a raise and uh, give you some of their salary. And then we're gonna hire another person. And we just reorganized because we knew what that person was doing, or in that case, how little they were doing. So this helps you stay focused, it lets you get 5% better every day. And when somebody starts the next effort, right, and we start to see something repeating over and over again, like precious starting a new angel university, because we do it every three or four months, we he can go back and look at what he was doing, how he was tracking in the previous one. And if Presh were to leave to go start his own company, well, then I could just tell somebody look at Presh's end of W's uh, and, and SOW's and you know what you're going to do. Right? See how easy that is. And it focuses people on those key goals. What is the goal? 
What is the task you're working on? Why are we doing that? How are you tracking that progress? What metrics are you knowing to say this project is on track? And when you reach a roadblock, who uh, are you going to ask? So you're investing all these time in all these projects, you want to get that data into your end of week, your start of week, even your SOD EOD. As an example, we were tracking, hey, uh, how is the podcast doing? How is how are Twitter followers going? Because you have to write something down, that lets you remember it. And it also focuses you on that's what your job is and what's important. So for a salesperson, what deals you closed is important. For, you know, a producer of this week in startups, what guests you're booked is important, right? Because we're only as good as the guests. Well, maybe that's not true. But you know, it, sometimes I can make lemonade even with the bad guests, I'll be totally honest. But <laughs> I would rather have Dara from you know, Uber on or Keith Raboy on that that really helps, uh, you know, the show do well. So it also creates a friendly competition among high performers, I'm told I, I didn't set out to make this a competitive thing. But when people see how much great work other people are doing, and how impressive their EODs are or end of weeks are, a person who wants to move up in the organization from a researcher to associate, they're going to say, you know what, I need to pick up the pace here that person's getting more rebounds, scoring more points, they have a better sh free throw shooting percentage than me, if we're going to use a basketball analogy, they can run faster, they can, you know, uh, jump higher, they've got less body fat, you know, all these things that professional athletes would uh, track. Well, when they started tracking that stuff in the NBA, then you started to see the three pointer and people's ability to shoot it, go to all positions in the NBA It used to be like you had shooting guards shot the three. And then we had, well, you know, maybe we have a combo guard, the point guard can shoot the three. Oh, you know what? It'd be great if the power forward or the small forward could shoot a three. And they're like, what would happen if a center could shoot a three <laughs> reasonably well? Oh boy, is that disruptive and spreading the floor. You can also run your meetings when you do have uh, a weekly meeting. You can look at the EOWs and use those to make the meetings go faster, uh, go faster. And it lets you also know, I think, where people should double down and what's not working. And, and maybe we should scrap this process. And as an example, we um, did a chart of how many calls were being taken by the investment team uh, in our weekly meeting. And I could see each of the associates how many meetings they were doing week over week. In some cases, they were sitting in on meetings because they were being trained, but we could track, hey, we're at 50, 60, 70 meetings a week. And all those meetings are on the notion and then people are linking to the deal memo. So I can jump into our notion at any time and look at the 50 companies we met with this week. And I can watch the video of the zoom man, this is incredible for me and the company. So once again, to make this super easy for you, it allows you to identify and reward high performers, it identifies who shouldn't be in your company, because it's not a match, or they're not pulling their weight, it reduces stress while increasing productivity and eliminates a bunch of meetings. Those reasons alone, you should do it. And just as a little technical thing, what I like to do is people do their EOD five minutes, and their end of day, they reply to their SOD, and then check that box in Slack that puts it into the, the channel. So the reply gets in threads, so people could have a thread about your day, or you could have a thread asking questions, or and or they can just see it go by it also in this day of always working because there's no commutes. It allows you to start and end your day, which is great for everybody. The ability for you to say I'm starting my day, I'm ending my day. Boy, is that beneficial psychologically, we used to have commutes to do that. Now you can use the EOD and the SOD. Now I know some people go, Oh my god, you're punching the clock, you're counting the hours. No, nobody is looking at the timestamps of these things. We have left the concept of, you know, time in time out because we're not we don't have a camera on you in your home office. I mean, I literally have a camera in my home office. 
but it's not on all day. And we're not screen recording people, although I have read about companies screen recording their employees at work all day. That's crazy. I mean, with the exception of maybe a call center. That being said, if the person did four hours of work, and it was colossal, and they did a two hour gym session, they took a nap for an hour, and they went to lunch for an hour. Does anybody really care? Probably not. They just care that the work's getting done and the ball's moving forward. And now people are looking at the compensation of the team in aggregate. Okay, we got 10 people. We're spending this amount per year. The company's making this amount. Fine, let's move on. So efficiency, esprit de corps. It's just a wonderful program. I hope you try it uh, and tweak it. And now on to our interview. Today, many small business owners are busier than ever, don't I know it? And because they're so focused on managing and growing their business, they can't always spend time on one of the most critical functions, some might argue the most critical function at any company, recruiting. That's why LinkedIn Jobs has made it easier to find and hire the best candidates for free. I can tell you I have had a tremendous experience finding amazing talent on LinkedIn because they put the jobs you're trying to fill in front of the right people, both active searchers and passive searchers. I have landed some amazing talent who weren't actively looking for a job, but LinkedIn put something in front of them that got them on the hook. And then they said, you know what, maybe I would consider switching jobs and doing something more exciting like working for JCal. <laughs> and that has been amazing for me. So why have we had this amazing experience on LinkedIn? Well, 740 million professionals all over the world, they have the biggest global footprint and finding amazing people around the world is a massive competitive advantage. They have incredibly simple tools. They filter and prioritize all the top candidates to set them up for interviews and you're just gonna get qualified, motivated, skilled people. So they're gonna give you a free job posting. I kid you not, your first job posting is free if you go to linkedin.com slash twist. LinkedIn.com, it's already in your browser history, slash TWIST. You need to get back to work. You need talent. You're only as good as your people. And this is where you find the great people on LinkedIn, LinkedIn.com slash twist. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. Hey, everybody, welcome to this week in startups. We've got an amazing guest for you today. Bill Maris is with us. He is the founder of Section 32. Before that, he ran Google Ventures, their venture arm. Bill's had investments to date that have resulted in over 150 exits and more than 50 companies that have grown to over $1 billion in value. Welcome to the program, Bill. Thanks for having me. So you were at Google Ventures. Did you found Google Ventures or were you part of the founding team? For better or worse. Nope, I founded it. Yeah. What was, what was the founding story there? Because, you know, we, we had Intel always had a venture arm. But they put like a million dollars into companies like kind of followed on. And Google Ventures, Google invested from their balance sheet, but then they set a GV or Google Ventures to be this independent arm. What was Larry and Sergey's idea there when they put you in charge of Google Ventures? Yeah, it's super confusing uh, a, a story. There's a short, medium and long version of this. So yeah, give, us, give, the, give of- us the medium one, yeah. Yeah, the media one. So, um, I, I, uh, there's nothing about me or my background that would distinguish me as a potential venture investor or even successful at it. So I really just kind of shoehorned, lucked my way into Google. I had started an internet company in the nineties, late nineties, a web hosting company, sold that. Then I did a bunch of nonprofit work. And, uh, but my very first job out of college was uh, I shared an office with Ann Wojcicki, uh, and we were, both ah. fr- fresh faced, uh, uh, just trying to figure it out, working in New York City, had no idea what we were doing. Super, mm. a- as is the theme here, super unqualified for the jobs <laughs> that we had. 
And, uh, and through Anne, uh, and our friendship that grew, I got to know Larry and Sergey, uh, in the kind of 1998 after I had started my own company. Uh, oh. and thought, well, this is, you know, I met them in the garage. I thought, well, this is cute. They've got their rollerblades, but I have a real business doing real revenue. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I did my own thing. And then, uh, Anne and I have been really good friends for a long time. And I got to, uh, be uh, good friends with those guys as well. And then uh, after I kind of found myself in the you know 2007 or so, kind of between what am I going to do next, uh, I started talking to them about uh, Google and they thought, oh, maybe we should have a venture arm and talk to Eric about it. And, you know, they just said, well, why don't you kind of interview for this open role? And I thought, okay, well, this is probably just a slam dunk. 23 interviews over like a nine month period. <laughs> wow. Well, I, I sort of landed a desk in corporate development. Uh, and it was typical Google at the time. It's like I had, didn't know who my boss was. I didn't have any assignments. It was just sort of you're in charge of whatever you claim to be in charge of. So I just decided, well, I'll kind of work on venture investing. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, started to put together a business plan. I, I just kind of introduced myself to John Doerr and Mike Moritz and everyone on Sand Hill Road who wouldn't meet with me except for the fact that, you know, Google was on my business card. And I was not like, I didn't have a title. It's not like I was a senior person. In fact, at the time I was sitting next to an intern uh, who was developing this app called Bourbon uh, (laughs) that he was really excited about. And I encouraged him. He's like, you know, you got to go do this someplace else. Was this at the pier on the Embarcadero? No, this was in uh, Palo Alto. Uh, oh, in sorry, Palo Alto. In Mountain okay. View. Tech, in Mountain, Mountain View, okay. Yeah. And so he was just sitting next to me and he's working on this. I mean, that's Kevin Sistrom. He ended yeah, up, Bourbon ended became up Instagram. Instagram. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, he got passed over for promotion because he wasn't technical enough. And and it was kind of a, a, a weird time. And, and so I, um, uh, you know, put together this plan and through a, a bunch of just kind of talking and those guys thought it was a great idea. Eric kind of ordained me and said, you know what? You should, if we were going to do this, you should do it. I'll have the benefit of knowing really soon uh, or eventually at least whether you're any good at it. Uh, and so here's a hundred million dollars. And so um, I was joined by at the time, Ronnie Conway, who was a- uh, Sure, um, Ron Conway's son. Ron Conway's son was a, 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 on Megan Smith's team, which was new business development and Rich Miner, who- a uh, great friend and returned to great investor uh, who was uh, kind of like, you know, the the other kind of co-founder, if you will, of Google Ventures. And uh, and we just started making investments, meeting people. And Rich was in Boston. I was in California. And, you know, Rich had had experience uh, at Orange Ventures and co-founded Android. And, and, you know, there's a lot that happened between there and here, but basically grew it from that to you know, what it was when I kind of retired from there. And uh, like I said, there was nothing about it that would have marked it as being successful. It was sort of laughed at initially. Well, yeah. And also a little bit confounding because everybody thinks, oh, strategics, why are they doing it? A lot of times that people pop up a strategic venture fund for, you know, some project and then the person leaves the company and it goes away and they're kind of flighty. And they also, when they make an investment, have probably some ulterior motive. And so that's what everybody was reading into with Google was, oh, is this to build a moat around search? Is this to get intelligence to copy products? How did you mitigate that? Yeah, because Google, you know, at the time and continuing today is a big presence. How did you manage people reading into what the motivation was? Because my understanding was 
they told you financial motivation, the end. Actually, the reverse, uh, you know, you put your finger on it. it, it uh, we, we spent about a, a year, Rich and I, really studying venture and corporate venture in particular, what worked and what didn't. And that, that um, really informed what we thought Google Ventures should look like. And, and credit to Eric, Barry, and Sergey, who basically gave us carte blanche, you know, set it up in the way that you think makes sense, that makes this a real thing and, and kind of the, 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 if you boil it down, the rules of the, of the road at that time seemed like one, uh, we're going to invest for a financial return. Any other metric is impossible to measure and therefore won't succeed. Like if you can't measure it, especially at Google, it's like, we'll never know if this is working and it'll get shut down. So we're going to invest for financial return, which is the best measure of whether, uh, you know, a commercial enterprise is having an impact, uh, in a, in a sense. The second, uh, the people that work here should get paid like venture capitalists. They should have the same financial incentives because we had seen what happens is if you don't have that, especially in a corporate setting, the great people get offers and go somewhere else, leaving behind the people who probably can't or won't go somewhere else. And then your returns suffer uh, as a result. Uh, and the third was, this is not uh, Larry and Sergey, your sandbox. So I need complete autonomy over the investments you can't kind of dip your, you know, your kind of your nose in and, 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 and say, well, you should invest in this Zeppelin company and so forth. Uh, <laughs> we're going to do our own thing. Uh, yeah. and, and you've got a balance sheet to do other kinds of investments. And it needs to be set up as a venture fund, separate entity, uh, that is not controlled, uh, in a sense. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, the, again, credit to them. They agreed to all of those things. And I think in part, it's like, well, this is de minimis money to Google. Uh, and the risk reward, you know, the, the rewards could be huge and the risks are kind of minimal. So, uh, and so we got started. And the rewards did pretty well. I think probably some of it, these have turned out to be extraordinary. I think you put 500 million into Uber at some point or 250 yeah, the, million. Yeah. I, I mean, we've uh, generated, you know, I think that kind of eight or nine of the investments I did alone have generated, you know, billions of returns. Uber, Nest, uh, we invested in a company called uh, Upstart which is, you know, 100x return. So uh, Dave Gerard's company. Uh, so uh, yeah, we've, uh, we we found our niche uh, at the time. And Nest, you wind up buying Uber, you wind up having a uh, obviously Google winds up having a super contentious relationship with <laughs> so an employee everyone, right? issue. <laughs> 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 then, you know, Robinhood Slack, people argued maybe Google should have bought Slack. Obviously, they you did I buy argued Nest. Google. Yeah, I said Google should have bought Slack for sure. You did, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, um, Stuart's a Why friend. Why didn't they? The same reason I think that Google didn't buy Instagram, didn't buy Shopify. It just at the the price was price was too high. But of course, the price is always too high for the good things. And and I really uh, argued that that uh, that that was incorrect. And, uh, and and the price only goes up for, has only gone up some, from there. And I think it was a mistake. I heard that when Facebook bought Instagram and WhatsApp, Larry went bonkers and was like, how did we lose these? We need to get our act together. We need to move faster on M&A. True story? I think that there, anytime a competitor gobbles up something, there's always a little bit of that regret, you know, kind of a non-buyer's remorse for why didn't we buy it? But those were on our radar. We, we had... I won't say we had opportunities in the sense that you'd have to come to an agreement, but there were opportunities to have those conversations. And I certainly raised those as targets. Yeah. When a company misses, 
you know, buying it. Why does that occur? And why does Zuckerberg do so good at that moment in time, do you think? I think uh, I think there's two reasons I can think of. One, there's you know fear around the price. No one wants to look stupid. So mm. so oh we, we completely overpaid for this asset. I mean, if you think of what Facebook paid for WhatsApp at the time, eighteen billion or something, that's a big number. A uh, lot yeah. of potential to look dumb, and and people in big positions don't really like to look dumb. So that that's kind of one reason. Uh, but and I think the other reason is. Especially big companies get so entrenched in that it wasn't built here mindset ah. that, that, you know, we're working on these five other things that are technically better or, you know, they're going to get traction and we have distribution and there's a million reasons why. But I think it loses sight of the fact that it's really hard to displace an incumbent. And so, it, you know, betting on the number two or three in the market is not always the smartest way to go. So if you have a chance to be, you know, take out the market leader and, and bring it onto your platform. Uh, and, and I just think it takes courage. And I think Google showed that courage with YouTube. Um, but oh, yeah. Another, I mean, they bought yeah. YouTube for what? 1.6 billion when it had this crazy, like, incredible lawsuit coming down like a sword yeah. right about to hit them on the neck. And like, Google <laughs> comes in and like, stops the sword from decapitating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, I think I think Solar Kamengar is an early Google employee, yeah. a good friend, gets a lot of credit, or should get a lot of credit uh, for that uh, acquisition. Um, uh, but I think, you know, Google in some ways kind of lost its nerve to buy uh, big things. Uh, and, and I think you've seen a struggle with, with, with Allo and these different kind of chat and buzz. And I mean, there's an endless list of things Google has launched that have failed to catch. Every startup needs to ensure they own their intellectual property. You gotta file your trademark. Now listen, I'm not being conceited here, but a lot of people will watch what I do over the years and copy it. Well, that's not cool. If you file your trademark, then it's a very simple conversation. Do you know how this goes down? You literally send them a link to your trademark or you send their attorney a copy of the trademark. You know what that big company does? They back off immediately. Oh, you got the trademark. We're done. I'm telling you in a dozen out of a dozen times, that's probably what's happened. The person immediately goes, okay, you're right, Jake. You got the trademark. You got us. But trademarks are a huge hassle. So if you don't know where to start, look no further than Brainbase File. It's a clean, simple, and automated trademark filing platform that gives anyone the ability to protect their best ideas. There is no need to spend thousands of dollars on an expensive lawyer to file the trademark for you. Now you can do everything yourself in a few easy steps. Brainbase File gives you goods and services recommendations using artificial intelligence, AI, so you can avoid back and forth with the patent trademark office and eliminate human error. They also offer full transparency into the USPTO's process with step-by-step notifications and real-time updates on your trademark's approval. No one likes dealing with trademarks, but BrainBase File makes it easy. Head over to brainbase.com slash twist and enter the code TWIST at checkout. When you file that first trademark, you're going to do it for just $169, a 15% discount. Brainbase, B-R-A-I-N-B-A-S-E.com slash twist. It's an amazing product. It's the product I've always wanted. So thanks to Brainbase for making it. Why did they never get anything to work in social, do you think? I don't and think to this day, that, I don't think there's any social, no. right? It's, nothing's no. ever worked. No, I think I think you have to really understand and be social to get social. Ah. Now, I'm not social. I'm on like no social media really. And so I won't say, you know, I won't say I don't understand it, but it doesn't appeal to me. Mm. Um, but I think uh in particular, I don't know that to the, you know, at least the then current leadership at Google that was well understood. I mean, if you look at Google Plus, that was not a well thought, it was not a thought out product. Uh, mm. and, and, you know, I was going to say not a well thought out, but it wasn't thought out. It was just 
we're going to compete and and you can't really launch a top-down social product you know mm. you, you need to have momentum and i also remember buzz google buzz was so well done when it was integrated into your gmail because it instantly knew your social network yeah. because you were emailing with people yeah. and i remember they had kind of been like maybe that's a little too overreaching and zuckerberg never meant Matt, any friction, he was not in favor of removing. Right. And who cares if people's privacy gets compromised, whatever. You want to add somebody to a group, go ahead and add them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if, and, and he basically said, with groups, you can add anybody to any group. And if your friends add you to a group that you shouldn't belong to, well, maybe you should have different friends, was his right, quote, yeah, basically, yeah. paraphrasing here. Whereas you guys were like, oh, you know what? Yeah, if somebody's ex is in their mailbox and we add them to their thing. Oh, yeah, that feels yeah. overreaching and basically shut down Google buzz. Is, is that also like Google just cared too much? Yeah. And was too considered? I think cared more than startups need to and probably cared more than other companies did. I, at the time, at least, there was a very real, to give the devil its due, a very real sense of responsibility around mm. data, user data, how it's treated, uh, at least among the group of executives and engineers that I was working with that that yeah, you need to be really careful about that. And and that makes it really hard to launch a product like TikTok or Buzz or and make those things successful. Um, because you can you have this treasure trove of data. So it's tempting to use it. It's so much easier to use it, but it was not it was not googly to do so. How close did Google come to buying Tesla, do you think? I mean, there's been obviously a lot of people talking about it and it's been publicly out there. I don't know how much I should say, but <laughs> not not close. Well, Elon's yeah. talked about yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. It was a it was a real discussion. Yeah. It, what would the world have looked like if you guys had gotten that done? Well, I mean, well, there are two ways to look at it, right? We could imagine the world is the same but enhanced as it is, or you could imagine look at the things Google has purchased and how is it done with that, and would it have managed through Tesla's challenges the same way it did as a private company? I would argue no. I would say that that that. That would have been very challenging for Google to see ah. it through all of those challenges and then to commit to gigafactories and all the other things that Elon has uh, uh, committed to and to also be the, you know, the entrepreneur of the century out there, you know, uh, sort of uh, as, mm. the, as the front person for the, the technology. Uh, yeah. Would have been hard. But it would have been 20 or 30 billion dollars. It would have been an incredible <laughs> price when you think about it. It would have been if we assume the outcome was the same. But what if Google, had, we don't know, right? That's the thing about regret. Yeah. You don't know. It could have been much worse. Could have bought it and it could have just died on the vine. Elon could have said, I'm not interested in this anymore. I can't work with mm. you. And then it's dead. Wow. But then you look at YouTube and android and both of those have changed the world and become i think those are different uh, so those so? were much smaller startups uh run by their founders with, who are very collaborative chad and steve and uh and uh, rich and andy and that team were interested in google's platform as google was growing itself google wasn't the big bad giant that google was kind of the quirky fun tech up and comer in a sense uh and and joining the company then seemed like okay we can grow together and i think now seen as like this giant gobbling things up and if you gobble up tesla that probably feels a lot different also those were those are software businesses in large mm -hmm. part with you know youtube as a hardware data center component but google is great at that yeah building things in the real world uh like making cars yeah, that's a whole there's a reason why GM is great at making cars. It's very hard. Supply chains are really difficult. Yeah. 
I learned this with Nest, like very, very hard. Yeah, I mean, Nest now makes a great product, but it was a little shaky there in the early days. Yeah. Oh, it was. Yeah, it was. I was on the board, uh, you know, and uh, there were scary moments when we were sort of shipping the the thermostats for sort of leaving the factory. And I was on a board call and I said, guys, what if like these things don't work? Like what if <laughs> what if they get in everyone's house and like there's some glitch that's not software related? You know, that that happens. Like we're, we're done. And so sort of like cross our fingers and hope the test, the testing was thorough. Um, and so, yeah, that's, there's a whole, the only reason I thought that was a good bet with Tony and Matt and that team was they had done it before. Mm. You know, if they hadn't done hardware before, that is a very difficult to do a hardware and software stack and manufacture and distribute. And even Tony, I think in a sense, tapped out. It was like, okay, I've taken to this point. Let, you know, let's have someone else take it from here. And but still great products to this day. Yeah. What what do you think about self-driving? Waymo has been just very conservative in their approach and slowly, methodically, you know, sort of getting to market. But we've been in a perpetual, you know, have two they been to three years. I would say, have they been getting to market? I don't know. The the, the I feel well, like they have they, something in Arizona, right? They have some minivans in Arizona driving people yeah, around. But it, but I feel like that it feels like that technology has been stalled out for for five plus years. But yeah. Like where is the the progress? You know, from here, I'm an investor in a company called Aurora. Yeah, Chris we set the founder on. Yeah. Okay, Chris. Chris is yeah. great, and I I was friends with Chris at Google, and uh, and so that's a great example. So so Chris was at Google. So he was doing this. Something yeah. happened that caused him to feel like he needed to do it on his own. And he's created 10 billion, 20 billion, 30 billion, who knows how much value doing. It. And, and so when the question, the other question as to why doesn't Google, why, why didn't Google buy X, Y, or Z? It's like, well, they're having trouble even holding on. When you're a big company, it's, it's very difficult to hold on to innov- innovators. Hmm. And so I think there's obviously a ton of potential. I'm an investor that's a huge, huge market. But I feel like Chris and his team have uh, uh, a definitive lead. Yeah, Aurora was episode uh, twelve twenty eight uh, just this month, in fact. And they're go they're doing. He said trucks first, and they're going to try to make that work. Obviously, highways are a more finite uh, set. But if you had to guess, knowing what you've known, investing in the companies you have, everybody says, "Oh, two, three, four years, we'll be there." Self driving, and we've literally been saying that for ten right. years. Right. And here we are, eleven years later, and we're still not there. Right? You massively kind of like massively overestimate progress in the short term and massively underestimate it in the long term. So, uh, yeah, we're still, I would, it's, I would say we're still years away. (laughs) I would say we're still, I I think you'll see it in closed circuits, you know, uh, airports and uh, golf courses or wherever, you know, is sort of closed routes on trucking that, that kind of thing. But, um, but this is the thing with, when would you see those closed routes? Soon, I would think yeah. in the next couple yeah. of years, I would think. Uh, I mean, from what I know, uh, but but this is the thing with exponential growth and step functions. It's sort of like if we were on our star tax, and you said, "Well, when am I going to have a software-enabled app-based phone?" I'd be like, "Well, yeah. what are you even talking about?" And then it yes. appeared. So it's really hard to say. Like, it, it's probably going to happen and look in a way that we can't predict because it's like this. You know, mm, yeah, it's like from makes- two fifty-six to five twelve. It's not from two fifty-six to two fifty-seven. Right, it's going to just double. And which comes first, the VTOLs? Because watching Joby and some of these other, you know, basically 
drones with humans on them, just giant yeah. sized drones. And I know, I think Larry invested in three of them. I don't know if you've invested yeah. in any of them or did you invest no, in any of them I at Google? Invested. I've looked at them, I haven't invested in them. Yeah. And, and so those arrive before full self-driving in the Bay Area? You know, what is, city? I think what it comes down to is what is society's toleration going to be and which society for accidents? So, so one person gets killed by a self-driving car, uh, you know, how will we measure that risk? Will we, will we do it rationally and scientifically versus the, the, the people that didn't die because cars are driving themselves versus, uh, you know, some flying, you know, flying taxis, which don't exist. So it's like, what is our toleration for errors there? It's not going to be zero. The things will crash and things will break and people things will don't die. work. Yeah. And people will die. And so, so right now, for whatever reason, we've accepted 30 to 50,000 people a year can die in car crashes. And we're kind of okay with that. I would argue we shouldn't be. And I think Chris would argue the same. Uh, and Sergey definitely would argue that. Uh, and I think that's how that all those projects started. So what is our toleration for death as it, or errors as it relates to self-driving capability? And, how we, and, and as a society, as a population, we're terrible at measuring risk and, and accounting for it. And, you know, the pandemic is a great example of that. So, so I think the when and how these things roll out, it's sort of like we may not even see it in the U.S. first. I think there's much less a toleration for new technologies failing than there are in some other, you know. Uh, yeah, countries. no, I mean, in an authoritarian country, they'll just launch roll, roll it. it out. Literally, yep. <laughs> they'll launch yes. it. It's not a big deal. And in fact, I've seen there's a company in China that I forgot the name of it, they're going public. And they are literally running humans in tests and, and going pretty high. Uh, Ehang, I think is the one E H A N G. Doesn't um, sound then, like a, that's not a, the right name. <laughs> Do you want to yeah. fly my e-hang? <laughs> no. I'm going to fly my e-hang. You hang and, uh, but I mean, it, the, the videos are pretty uh, compelling. You've worked on a lot of healthcare stuff. There was some company at Google, was it Calico or Calico? Calico. What was yeah, Calico. Calico. So that's a company I started. Um, you started it and that was for yeah. life extension was yeah, the general was, idea. Yeah, that was the general idea. The, the pitch, the pitch was, uh, was as follows. It didn't go, it has not gone the direction I wanted it to go, but, ah. you know, uh, lots of creators can say that about their creations, Dr. Yes. Frankenstein included, but, uh, <laughs> but Calico. What was the original vision? And, and, and yeah. It was basically, um, if I were to write down on a blackboard the symptoms of aging, but not tell you that it was about aging. It would look like many other diseases. It would look like a disease state. Uh, if I describe, we described what happens as someone ages. And so it, it seemed clear to me at the time, this is more than 10 years ago now, that, 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 that their aging is, there's, it's all genetic based. It's sort of like the, it's based on the proteins that are expressed, but are encoded by your genes. So the, the only difference that differentiates you kind of 40 year old you from 20 year old you, is the status of your genes and what proteins they're expressing. And so it seemed like we had, we're at a time then where, well, we can read the genome and we are rapidly developing tools. I invested in a company called, uh, Iperion and another called Editas and, and so forth where, okay, now we can actually alter the genome. Uh, so we should be able to understand the genetic basis of aging. And if we can do that, we can cure a lot of disease, prevent a lot of suffering. Uh, and you know, that that's kind of the holy grail for, I mean, literally that's the holy grail, right? So it's literally the, the purpose literally of the, the holy grail, grail was to live forever. <laughs> so, so the, the goal wasn't, Hey, let's live forever. It was like, okay, this seems like something worth doing. And so I wrote up a business plan 
Uh, and I was going to fund it via Google Ventures. So I was going to kind of do the Jack Dorsey, Elon Musk kind of mini th- version of it. Okay, I'm going to start this company as well. Uh, right. And in doing so, uh, was ta- I talked, I collaborated really with Ray Kurzweil and my friend, Andy Conrad, who's now running Verily over at Google uh, and, and a number of other folks. And uh, in talking to Larry and Sergey and John Doerr, who was on the Google board, well, why don't we do this inside of Google? Like we'll fund it inside of Google. And they're like, ah. And the things funded inside of Google uh, makes me, uh, should we do that? But ultimately, uh, we decided, okay, let, let's do that because Google can write a really big check. And so we wrote, uh, um, just presented it to the board that, that funded it with a billion dollars. I brought in um, Art uh, Levinson, who was the former Genentech CEO uh, to be CEO. Uh, and it was uh, you know off and running. Uh, I think since then, it's taken a decided turn towards pharma development, developing drugs, but also is hasn't been as open. The idea was this is going to be an open project so that you know science is based on openness and collaboration. And they've kind of done the op of the Google thing. We're like, no, we're super shut down. We're not going to share. Uh, yeah, and Google so, does yeah. that with certain things. And then in other things, they're open. So they're when it comes to the algorithm and how things are ranked, it's very close yeah. when it comes to Android, very open. H- yeah. How do they make that decision to be open or closed? I, you know, I, I think sometimes people think that Google has this master plan and there's a stri- yes. strategy behind strategy behind everything. And yes, and my experience was that that's not the case at all. It's sort of random. <laughs> it's sort of, ah. you know, why did Google have Chrome and Chromium and Android and are they competing? And it's just sort of like you have these teams that have ideas and they're empowered to start things. Mm. And whether it's a new way to fix the bikes on campus, or it's I'm going to build a new kind of browser, and uh, and there are, in a lot of cases we're allowed to run with them, uh, and so um, so yeah, there's often competing factions even within Google, uh, you know, because it's such a big behemoth. And, and comp and that's Larry and Sergey's idea is a little bit of chaos or competition is better than some top down control. I think it's, yeah. And I think it probably comes from, you know, like a, a Montessori background where it's like, oh, we'll just put all the toys out. <laughs> like, you know, what gets played with? Who's going to build what with these blocks? And, uh, you know, and, and uh, it's worked you know, pretty well uh, in a lot of cases. Yeah, I mean, there was just a New York Times story about Sundar yesterday yeah. with 15 unnamed execs. Yeah, so feared there, retribution. I'm like, really? New York Times 15 execs yeah. are scared yeah. of Sundar and retribution. It's like, it's so silly that they're allowed to write these stories with you yeah. know, 15 unnamed sources. Like, just be on the record. I mean, force people to be on the record. I, I think I know what the media is doing when they do that. They're basically like, we would like juicier quotes. So how yeah. about you're off that's the record? 100%. I've gotten a lot of those calls where it's sort of, that's exactly what it is, which is, I have an idea for a story. The mm. Sundar is failing. Let me talk yeah. to a bunch of people. And when you've got a company with, I don't know, Google must have 200 VPs. I don't know. Yeah. You're going to find 10 or 15 who are unhappy sure. for whatever reason. And I've got nothing negative to Sundar is such a great guy and he takes it very personally. He's working really hard. You, you can take objection to like, maybe you shouldn't do this or we should make this other decision, but it's not an easy job. And, uh, and yeah, I don't, I don't love the, uh, uh, the un, unnamed, uh, sources. The company is doing phenomenally well on all accounts. Yeah, but agree. Right. I would agree. I just think in any population, you could find, you know, out of a thousand people, five people who are really unhappy. 100%, especially if you are running a Montessori classroom (laughs) where everybody is welcome to do projects. 
I mean, you you need only look at the profitability and the amount of cash this business is throwing off to know they're doing things correctly. Right, it's a triple. I think since Sundar uh, was CEO, it's the values, but you know, triple. Now, of course, it's a great flywheel. So I think their yes. argument would be, oh, instead of tripling and doubling headcount, we could have kept headcount the same and and quintupled. Uh, but who knows? Uh, you know, but it's hard to argue with like the second, maybe second most valuable company in the world. Like uh, it's it's not an easy act. I, yeah, I just saw the story and I was just like, rolled my eyes. I was like, I don't even need to read a New York Times story at this point with 15 unnamed sources in it to know that this is just an agenda driven story that is maybe 20% true at best. But I isn't mean, this what we do now? We build people up, yes. you know, whether it's Mark Andreessen or Sundar or unit until it's time to take them down. Uh, right. And and that's the cycle. And that's why I've never wanted to be built up in that way because I don't want to be taken down. <laughs> well, you did leave to start your own firm. I think you told Kara Swisher, you know, things were running at a high functioning level and it was time to do that. But you just wanted to be out of the mothership and have complete control or what was the thinking? Yeah, I mean, I think there are two things happening. One, uh, I, I mean, I, I, I won't get into it, but I think I mentioned there was someone I was working with uh, at Google where I was forced to work with that I didn't uh, really uh, enjoy God, working your, with. Yeah, who made sense. life miserable for a lot of people unnecessarily. Yes, and, yes. And, and I just didn't agree with the way business was being done, uh, you know, uh, in that sense. And so that was one piece of it. And the other piece was you got to know when the cake is done, right? So it's like, well, I kind of did all the stuff there. And the one thing I hadn't done was own the management company. Like it wasn't, uh, I was in charge, kind of like could be dictator and all that. But but at the end of the day, I was still working for someone else. And that's not something I had done most of my career. And so Larry and Sergey stepped away. Eric was stepping away. Bill Campbell, unfortunately, passed away. Yeah. Uh, uh, um, Salar and uh, all of my kind of Tony left, Tony Fidel, kind of all my friends and we're all stepping back. And it just seemed like, you know, I could tolerate a lot of pain, but I don't want to be lonely. And it seemed like, okay, th this seemed like the time. Uh, and, and I had thought about it a year prior and then been asked, you know, can you stay another year because, you know, Tony just left and so, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then, you know, you just, when you know, you know. Yeah. And you just raised a billion dollars, just emailed a couple of friends and boom, a billion dollars shows up. Or <laughs> yeah. what, what's that like when you've got your track record and then you say, I'm starting a fund? Does Google just say, hey, we'll anchor it or something on the way out? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think it's, it was easy and difficult at the same time. And in a sense, if I had set the bar lower, I think it would have been, you know, kind of a snap in a sense. Yeah, we've raised over a billion dollars now. and But I had a lot of momentum coming out of Google, track record. Uh, and so forth. And that helped a lot. At the same time, when when it comes down to it, and it's time for LPs to sign the LP agreement, uh, and you know, I was asking for pretty premium terms because it's like, well, that's the only way I want to do this. Uh, some balked. You know, I had one mm. very large name brand. Premium LP. terms being like, oh, you want a thirty percent carry or something? A carry control, uh, no concentration limits. You know, all of the you know things that I wouldn't even maybe use, but I felt like, well, if I'm going to do this, like let me like let me ask for what Sequoia gets, you know? Yeah. And and so there was one, you know, in particular, one very large LP who at the last minute said, "We're good to go." Make you know, kind of cornerstone LP, but here's a side letter: we want preferential economic terms, we want reduced carry, reduced fees, we want to hmm. see your pipeline and sign this and you can't give it to anyone else and you can't tell your other LPs. Yeah, and that just that's felt, gnarly. That felt not nice. Uh, and I wasn't going to do that. And so I did no side letters, booted them. Uh, well, they walked really. So I'd like to think I booted them, but I said, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, and it sounds like you didn't accept their last minute uh, <laughs> ultimatum. 
It was a, I think it was described as like one of the, uh, one of the crazier things for an LP to pull at the last minute. And, and I, you know, I don't, I know you play poker, but uh, yeah. I have played, but I don't bluff. It's sort of like, no, I'm not going to. They said, well, it's the day before. What are you signing. doing on Tuesday night? We're having a game. They, I'll play. <laughs> You're invited. <laughs> I think you have money. Come to the game. Well, like, <laughs> you can learn. We can teach you how to bluff. That's who you want to play with. Yeah, people yeah, who have money. We'll teach you how to bluff. It'll be a, it's going to be an expensive two or three years, but, you know, you'll, you'll have a couple of laughs and some good Sounds wine. Sounds fun. No. <laughs> um, you know, I, uh, yeah, that's right. If you don't know who the sucker at the table is, you know. New bestie. So, yeah, right. <laughs> Welcome exactly. to the team, bestie. <laughs> Uh, speaking of besties, you you backed uh, my bestie Friedberg a bunch of times, and you guys are besties yeah. uh, for in in the real world. I love that guy. Yep. Um, you backed Climate. You backed Metro Mile. What, what's unique about uh, Bestie Friedberg? Well, he and I, you know, he's got a Google background, so I hate to keep using that word, but but there's a certain at the time that people were there. You learn a certain way of tackling problems, a certain way of doing postmortems when things go wrong. It's just a really familiar way of doing business. And he's a great person, super uh, science driven, very principled, uh, really brilliant. I learn every time I talk to him, I, I feel like I learned something great. What was he like minds. at Google when you like met him for the first time? I you only guys got to like know him. I really only got to know him well at climate. Uh, and, ah. you know, and so that's when we really kind of built a relationship because I joined the board there. Uh, he was very much the same, very high energy, very engaged, uh, deep on I mean, this is why he was great at Google, right? Because that's who Larry and Sergey were. People who are deep on multiple areas and then are um, uh, fact-driven and not uh, not BS artists. You guys passed on Theranos. You met Elizabeth Holmes. Uh, you and I both called it. <laughs> if you have the technology, you would show it. What are the lessons we can learn there? And what was it like meeting with her? I mean, there's so many, right? That, that's a great example of the media just like deciding we like a story. This will be a good story because the... The parameters of it look nice. It look good on the cover of a magazine, but doing no research, like not, not actually taking the test and then taking a quest or lab core test and comparing the results. That's all right. I did. That's all you needed to do. And you literally and asked her, can I see the results and compare them? I what asked was her through response? an intermediary. I, I didn't even take the meeting. Uh, ah. No, the answer, here are the lessons. When a startup has in science or in love life sciences has a board full of government of former government officials. No hmm. one experienced in the life sciences, former yeah. generals, great people. But they know nothing about what's going on hmm. when they've got armed guards at the uh, at the entrance, you know, literally like armed guards when Trapped. they they won't answer any questions like huh. they were all of the signs. This was not this should not have been a surprise. And it, that's why there are no life science investors, because those of us in the know know that like it's not just the technology. There's regulatory issues. There are all kinds of things. And it's like. If it smells too good to be true, come on, this is vaporware. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, if you know, just in terms of signaling for the media, people forget this is at a time when people are like, "Hey, how come there aren't female CEOs of billion-dollar companies who have received yeah. hundreds of millions of financing?" And I think it's not inaccurate to say that Elizabeth Holmes hacked that system. I'm saying this like she yeah. knew that they wanted her to be on the cover because. They needed a female right. CEO to trumpet and put on the cover and to say had raised a hundred million. And here is the golden child who is going to change Silicon Valley. A disservice to all of those who would want, who would follow all the, especially yep. female founders in science and tech that, that want to do things that really, and especially in that area of diagnostics, really like poison the well a little yep. bit. And, uh, and, and, and 
yeah, I think it was a good story that that wanted to get the kind of wanted to be promoted and and told. But uh, I, you know, I didn't seek to take down Theranos. I was asked at a conference on stage, "What do you Oof. think?" And I said, well, I, "I think it's, it. com- it's complete. It's complete nothingness. Like wouldn't touch it with a hundred foot pole." And then I was like pilloried on Twitter. Yes. Apparently. It's like yes. Bill doesn't like you know female founders and why Ugh. and why is he talking about this? And I'm like, look, you asked me a question, I answered it. Don't make this the about end. me. Yeah. Make it about the technology. I would Show have the loved technology. to have been. I would have loved to have been wrong. That would have been great. Absolutely, I've been wrong a lot. I would have no problem being wrong. But in that case, I was pretty sure I wasn't. It, it really does speak to um, this effect where you know if you're in the know about a specific vertical, and then you see media coverage of it, you Im- or if you're the subject, and there's a name for this effect, I forgot what it's called, um, where if you read a story about yourself, or, you know, a company you worked for Google, or a topic, you know, biotech, whatever it is, you realize how little the journalist actually knows, be- and how could they? They're a journalist. They're not a PhD. Yeah. And then you see her on the cover of all these magazines. It was just so obvious. If you had the technology, you would show it. Yeah. And I was just on CNBC. Especially in science. That's how science works. And and Elizabeth wasn't a scientist. She dropped out of Stanford, which is a badge of honor if you start a tech company. But not everyone who drops out starts a great company. Like there's a lot. There's a there's a like a bias there that oh she dropped out of Stanford. It must be a thing. But no, in the life sciences. Science is collaborative. You show it in the open. Yes. Like, that's not how this works. Correct me if I'm wrong. Also, science is really complex and takes years to learn as opposed to say Zuckerberg coding and he drops right. out like, yeah, Zuckerberg can learn to code better than his teachers at Harvard. So him dropping out or Bill Gates dropping out because they're moving faster than well, the computer science program. That's one thing. But for biotech and, and well, working you can with also, blood <laughs> you can also push a new rev of software uh yeah. and fix a lot of problems and uh, adjust the algorithm and you can see that you don't need to see google's al- algorithm to to have google prove that it's that it works so with with elizabeth's you know and the promise of theranos it's like well well show us that it works and it was so clear that it was it, it was obvious uh it, it, you know there was no magic in saying this is nonsense it literally was on CNBC yesterday talking about Tether, which is, a, for people who don't know, just a, a stable coin, but they won't produce their audit, they won't s- subject themselves to the audit, and just nobody knows any information. I'm always amazed that journalists or the public can't put together that when people have the goods, they can show it. And when mm-hmm. people don't, they filibuster and say they're being persecuted and attacked. Where right. they deflect. It's just classic right. behavior. Yeah. If you and have it's not good about sh- and it's not about Elizabeth. It's about show, show. It's about show, not tell. Like that's how yeah. science and even venture works. Like, it's just so much better to show. Don't talk about it. Show me the thing. Like open up the machine. Let's see how it works. And you didn't yeah. like that's the thing you would mention journalism. It's gone because the news cycle is so fast. It's all become opinion pieces. And it's and right. it, no no disdain on journalists, but it's like it's it's it moves so quickly that you have to, everyone has to have an opinion rather than doing research and uh, and actually like explaining things and and seeking to understand. It's just we have an opinion. This Theranos thing is great. It's going to change the world. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Yeah. Well, I have a fairy tale too, but like that yeah. one's not true. Yeah, that's fiction. I mean, if you just think about how it used to work, you would spend 10, 20 years on a beat. You would have mentors who were 10, 20, 30 years on the beat. So you at least had a time to build up some knowledge of a vertical 
And now they just have no money. And then also there's a young generation who look at journalism as activism. And I yeah. think that's sort of changed everything. I don't, I'm not sure that's how you feel about it. It's a very broken system. Science isn't activism. Journalism, I don't think should be activism. It should be, you know, and that's why we're kind of stuck in this weird place, at least in this country, where what, what is fact? What is true anymore? And we can't, if we can't agree on that, how are we going to do anything? What, what's happening in science in that regard, the sort of search for truth and facts? And what did you learn through this pandemic about the nature of it? I think your bestie, David Sachs, said it really well. So I'm going to paraphrase him. Yeah. It seems to me we're in a race between technological advancement and innovation and the disintegration of political and social systems. And hopefully the first thing goes faster than the other two uh, because uh, we're creating. So take you know, biology and, and uh, biotech tools. We have now have this great world where these tools exist, but there's no tool that's ever been created that hasn't been used by someone who's not well to do harm. Okay. So it's really hard, as you know, I think you talked about this a few weeks ago to create a nuclear bomb. It takes a lot right. of people, a lot of materials, they have to refine them, but you can 3D print, you can, sorry, you can print a uh, DNA print, uh, uh, a lot of things now. Uh, so yes. Canadian Dangerous researchers, things. yeah, they, they recreated the horsepox virus using uh, mail order DNA, a, kind of an extinct virus and a very close relative to smallpox and for a dollars $100,000. And that was years uh -oh. ago. So, so we are now these tools that are available uh, to large populations that are not difficult to use uh, are kind of extinction level tools. And we are so far behind the curve of where we need to be in understanding that and preparing for it. And, and that's why kind of bioterrorism is one of the areas that I'm most interested in as an investor is um, where there's a lot of opportunity to hopefully avoid that terrible scenario where someone who is not well decides, well, instead of shooting a gun and killing one person, the bullet doesn't keep going. Yeah. I'm going to release this virus. Yeah, it doesn't have going. a viral coefficient. Correct. <laughs> if bullets had viral coefficients, we it would be in R naught of uh, of one, right? So exactly. I mean, I mean, people would argue <laughs> AR-15s and others are, you know, but they're, they 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 work more effectively, but they certainly don't have a viral coefficient. Are the anecdotes uh, keeping up in our technology to build those and and you know counter what could be bioterrorism? How is that going? Are people actually building things to? I think that the tools exist to create the, the mayhem and the destruction and the death. We are not at all taking seriously. We are no better prepared for the next pandemic than we were for this one. We might <sighs> even be worse, you know, kind of worse prepared because this was the most benevolent form of a yes. benign pandemic. Uh, even though it's terrible, a lot of people died and didn't have to be that way. It's as benign a version of this. So, so. So, you know, SARS is about a 10% mortality rate. MERS was about 30. H5N1 flu is 60%. So if someone decided to weaponize that uh, and, uh, and make it more contagious, uh, you know, we are in a lot of trouble because, you know, one or 2% mortality rate, terrible, but society continues. 30% plus mortality rate. I don't know if society exists. The power grid goes down and, mm, you know, chaos goes down. Chaos and, we, and we're just not, I'm not trying to be, I think there are things we can do. So I'm not trying to be doom and gloom, but we're not taking it seriously in any way at a government level at a, uh, and um, uh, governments aren't talking to each other the right way. And uh, it, it's, uh, it's probably with climate change, one of the largest existential threats, I think, 
that we face and and we can see it coming shouldn't climate change be solvable given you know the advances we've made new nuclear solar mm -hmm. and then also carbon uh sequestering shouldn't we be able to solve it yes. is it it feels like the technology's there but maybe not the will to deploy the technology am i correct well i think all of these both of these problems are very solvable and addressable but the will, as you said, is the hard part, getting people to agree on the problem, number one, and then the solution. And then, as you know, as an entrepreneur, just doing things like start to execute. So I think part of the challenge with climate change, for example, is many of the same people who believe that climate change is real and it is a real threat are the same people who are very opposed to the next generation of nuclear technology. But it is our best bet right now to generate a lot of power uh, and keep society going without contributing to this problem. And, and, and so we're at a standstill there, uh, in a sense. How, how much safer are the nuclear reactors that Gates is working on and other folks are working on? I don't know if you have investments on it versus, you know, the reactor um, that was below sea level in Fukushima. Yeah. I think there were a obviously a lot of problems with challenges with that design. Uh, yeah. I think the next generation, and we haven't really built new nuclear plants in this country for a long time. Uh, yeah, 73 but, uh, think, or something yeah yeah and i think the ones that like you said gates is working on and the those are incredibly safe designs now of course it gets back to your first question which is or your earlier question on what risk tolerance do we have as a society are we willing to accept that you know what what percent chance or likelihood that something goes wrong and what is what is the outcome if it does using kind of new nuclear versus uh, uh going the route that we're going which is okay we're going to you know basically extinct ourselves if we continue on this path, and we've been on this planet for this very tiny sliver of time, we we're doing a great job making sure that like our branch of the evolutionary tree ends. Uh, and so I think it's a major concern. And, and yeah, we, we, we can solve the problems. Uh, but getting people to agree is uh, and understand is very challenging. It's just so weird. And there are so many economic tools you could use to make nuclear work. I don't understand why we don't give some sort of dividend to the people who live near a, you know, a nuclear reactor. So if a group of people said, Hey, yeah, we'll put this in this suburb of Texas, we'll put this in the suburb of Ohio, or wherever, you can just tell people there, so you're gonna get $1,000 a month for living in the zone, or we'll pay to relocate you whichever you prefer. There are dozens, if not hundreds of nuclear reactors floating around in the oceans and under the oceans, we launched them into space on satellites. So it, it, I think that we understand this technology well enough that it's referring to perfect. bombs, I take it. <laughs> no, I, I'm referring to the, the reactors on on warships. Oh, on submarines. And, yeah. Yeah, certainly add the bombs. Now we're into the tens of thousands, probably. Yeah. But there's satellites that go up that are nuclear powered. And, uh, and, and I just I, I think we're stuck because there's been an unwillingness or maybe not a I, I right, it comes down to incentive structures, giving yes. the right incentives for even politicians to take this on, you know, why would you take it on? Is it, you know, it's like, because your opponents will, you know, just kill you with yeah. it. And, and you'll lose the, the 70,000 coal miners in two states who, you know, are, are right. going to lose their $45,000 a year jobs right. that we could pay for with a yeah. fraction and, of the And let's look know, at benefit. like uh, the pandemic. So if we had been willing to do challenge trials, where, oh, where so you infect a couple hundred people, volunteers who are yes. willing. And there were many, many people willing uh, and who are healthy and with a very low likelihood of a bad outcome. Uh, we could have done those trials in weeks, not six months, and had these vaccines rolled out much sooner. In and March, so let's April. say even if 1% of those volunteers uh, had a bad outcome, we would have saved tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of lives. 
hundreds and of thousands of lives, and it would be no different than putting like astronauts or people who it's are no pilots or test pilots. After 9-11, a yeah. lot of great people volunteered and said, this is a cause I want to fight for. This is the same. People say, you know, people are dying. This is a cause. I am willing to take the chance. I understand the risks. And adults should be allowed to make those decisions. And I don't even think there was a real discussion in this country around a challenge trial. Uh, yeah. I think there was would a little take people bit actually Britain. understanding it as well. It also seems like the science community is so uh, precious about this not doing harm that they've not been able to take the, the risk reward into account. I think it's about not getting sued. Honestly, I think Ugh. I think science is willing to take chances, but I think it's about not getting sued. And, and what I are just the chances think, should we take in science? Do you think that we're not taking? Well, I think if you look at how we spend our money, like that's a good way to look at it. You know, if we, if we look at what we spend at um, uh, NIH, it's been forty three billion a year, uh, and at uh, CDC we spend six and a half billion a year, which is down from seven and a half billion. And on defense, we spend seven hundred and twenty billion a year. And I would argue that bioterrorism or even natural pandemic threats are at least a gra as great a threat as a conventional war uh, and, and maybe greater. Uh, and it would take very little. I mean, so here's an example, a universal flu vaccine to protect against H5N1. And I, I think there's a better, I think it's estimated there's a better than 50% chance that can be done over a five to 10 year period. Or much less, uh, you know, the five to 10 year estimate, by the way, it comes at a time when the traditional vaccine development, it was thought to take 10 years. And yeah. now we have multiple vaccines that are efficacious and safe that were developed in a very short period of time. So, so if we put, I don't know, a billion dollars towards, towards a universal flu vaccine, we would save so many lives that, that, and it, and so much lost productivity would be saved, but for people getting the flu, that it's a no brainer to do that. But, but you need government level incentives to do these things because the market incentive to create a vaccine that will be given away for free is zero. The reason why we have great vaccines now for COVID is the incentives got aligned with the outcome. And the government said, we're going to give you a bunch of money if you do this. The reason why the distribution was screwed up is that the government didn't say to CVS, we're going to give you 50 bucks for every person you vaccinate. And would have been a no would have seen, we would have been screaming, uh, you know, kind of a vaccination rate. And they would have been on the street in front of CVS yeah, being absolutely. like, hey, come on in and have a cup of coffee. We got donuts. I would have been in there. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 and so it's all about, in most cases, aligning incentives. So to your question, what, we just need to align the incentives with the outcomes that we want. So if we want climate change solved, or we want uh, 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 bioterrorism or the next pandemic addressed, we need to create incentives and, and government level incentives in some cases are the best way because there's no market for a vaccine that's free. And, 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 and so pharma doesn't have a reason to work on that. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think about how many trillions we spent on stimulus, that if we had just done the challenge trials, which would have required, you know, hundreds of people, <laughs> we, we could have shortened the pandemic by six months, it would have saved so well, many let's do some trillions. Quick math. Let's, let's yeah. say that we've spent $4 trillion so far, yeah. which is a mind-boggling number. But let's say that before this pandemic or before the next one, because the next one is coming guaranteed. It might be tomorrow, might be 10 years from now, but it's coming. Let's say that we spent $10 billion to build two world-class hospitals in every U.S. state. 50 states, that's $500 billion. And let's say we gave them each $5 billion to run for the next 
five years. Okay, so that's 5 billion times 50. That's another uh, 250 billion. So we're up to 750 billion, which is barely a down payment on what we spent on the response to this pandemic. And you and I both know most of that money was wasted. Like tons. Most yeah. of that money went to nonsense. It went, it, you know, and, and it's, you know, the fact that like the, the government of California is giving away cash in lotteries to vast price. The incentive that creates, by the way, is I'm next time I'm going to wait to get paid before I get vaccinated. Yeah, the so, last people in talk about a stupid way to deploy a strategy. I mean, I mean, it's like, there, there yeah, are so last many person decisions. gets the best price. What? There's so many decisions in this pandemic that boggle the mind. But but if you look at that four trillion dollars, it sort of comes at a time where prior to this, the argument was we have no money, we can't provide universal health care, we have no money. Suddenly, when votes are at stake. Oh, we can print $4 trillion. So, so we know providing healthcare or vaccines or solving climate change, we know that, that money is not the limiting factor. It's the will. It's the creating the incentive structure. It has nothing to do with money. And, and I personally believe every baby born in this country deserves top quality healthcare, clean, you know, clean water, good nutritious food. And we are rich enough to provide that. Super but instead simple. we. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's super simple. Uh, and and why we're not doing those things is just uh, heartbreaking. The housing one is also frustrating. It's just, we're, we're sitting here saying like, why don't we have enough houses? Like, we didn't build enough. Right. <laughs> the yes. end, like, yeah. we don't have enough yeah. of them. This is simple supply demand. And housing is not that hard to build. We've been building houses for a long time. We've been building modern houses for hundreds of years. It's not a difficult thing to build a house. Yes, like, it's about incentives. Where just yeah. look where the money is going, and that yeah. that that will tell you what problems are being solved or not solved. And that four trillion dollars, what a shame! Because we are no better prepared. This is this is a country where we couldn't get you know PP you know masks to people PPE, and and so so why would anyone have thought the vaccine rollout would go well? Yeah, I, I mean it is amazing that this vaccine has worked so well. Is is that shocking to you? Because it was shocking to me just how quickly we got the vaccine no, out and how quickly no, I, we, no, we kind of beat the pandemic. Moderna, I looked at Moderna yeah. years ago, mRNA vaccine ideas and technology have been around for quite some time, but caught in this, you know, kind of this nether world where the idea was it takes billions of dollars and 10 years to develop a vaccine. The liabilities for creating it, meaning you could get sued, give you a real disincentive to create, you know, vaccine, new vaccines. And that's why we just didn't see any new vaccines. So magically, when the, the the ability to sue and the it goes away and the incentive structure is created, it's not magic. You know, it's like, yeah. oh, suddenly we have all these. It's amazing breakthrough, you know, kind of technology when you think about how the world worked 100 years ago or 5,000 years ago. Yes, it's amazing. But I'm not shocked at all. I knew this was lurking. And there's a lot of things like that lurking in labs and uh, in science that that are just waiting for the government to get out of the way and the right incentives to be created. All right, listen, we're going to have to have you back on again and soon. Uh, an hour of Bill Morris, everybody. <laughs> uh, continued success. And we'll see you next time on This Week in Service. Bye-bye. Thanks so much.